I'm Bub. Welcome to Bub on Purpose, the podcast. I believe that a life driven by purpose can lead to a more fulfilling life. So I ask passionate people why they do what they do. I dive deep into conversations with people of all ages who have developed their life purpose and who can inspire, offer advice, share techniques for developing purpose, and articulate their perspectives. As this podcast is in the early stages, I'm really just excited to dive in and learn myself and share that with you guys. So if you're here in this early stage, I really appreciate you for listening and I hope you take away something valuable. It's not just this generation's fault that they feel so lost and that they're all trying to find their calling but can't. You've just been given more opportunities than anyone else ever had before. You have to try to look for something deeper than the culturally constructed. There's urgency to this passion thing, so I think you're really on to something. We're talking about whether we survive on the planet or not. I would live my life as if I was going to write a book about it. What would people say about me at my funeral? You really have to have a healthy disrespect for other people's opinion. You know, life is not this guarantee. We're in, there's no guarantee in life. The truck runs me down right after this interview. I fucking died doing everything I could possibly have done. The voice inside of you that's asking those questions deserves to be honored. That's your truth. That's your clarity. That's your passion. Because this is my longest episode yet, I thought I should share with you that I will often listen to podcasts at 1.5 times regular speed, which can easily be done by pressing 1x in your listening app, wherever you listen to podcasts. I typically do this because it allows me to listen to more podcasts and it helps me stay focused because the pace requires me to. I totally understand that you may enjoy the natural speed and rhythm of regular speed, but I want to put it out there in case you didn't already know that was possible. In this episode of Bub on Purpose, I speak with Vincent Stanley. Vincent co-authored The Responsible Company with Yvonne Chouinard, has been with Patagonia on and off since its beginning in 1973, and for many of those years in key executive roles as head of sales or marketing. More informally, he is Patagonia's longtime chief storyteller. Vincent helped develop the Footprint Chronicles, the company's interactive website that outlines the social and environmental impact of its products, the Common Threads Partnership, and Patagonia Books. He currently serves as the company's director of philosophy and is a visiting fellow at the Yale School of Management. He is also a poet whose work has appeared in Best American Poetry. In our conversation, we dive into the term sustainability versus responsibility, how not being a surfer helped him at Patagonia, his thinking behind Patagonia's Don't Buy This Jacket ad, and much more. Here's my conversation with Vincent Stanley. Well, thanks for joining me. And first, I want to start off with, why do you get out of bed in the morning? <laughs> um, well, thanks for having me here. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's an interesting 
it's an interesting question. One I don't think about. I I think I usually get out of bed looking forward to something, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm by uh, vocation a writer, and I do my writing in the early morning when I get up. So that's usually what I'm looking forward to getting into or dreading, uh, depending on where we ended up the day before. What What did you wake up excited about today? Well, actually, today was I. I had taken a break over the holidays, and today was the first day back at work, um, and I have a lot of stuff backed up. Mm. But I did. I spent about an hour and a half editing a poem, and then I had a phone call, and then mm. the day started. And is that work uh, usually down at Ventura at Patagonia? I work at Patagonia. I, I work mostly from home. Okay. And then I uh, go down to Patagonia on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, or and sometimes I'll go in more if they need me for. Uh, a meeting, yeah. Um, but I, I, I try to work from home as much as possible. A lot of it is, um, of the work involves writing or phone calls or podcasts, yeah, <laughs> or, or interviews. So um, I don't really have to have to be in Ventura except to keep in touch with my colleagues and to keep a sense of the place. Yeah. And how did you originally get involved with Patagonia? Um, I got involved, it was total nepotism. I was, uh, my uncle's Yvonne Chouinard, mm-hmm. and uh, he's 13 years older than I am. So when I was a kid, he was a teenage climber, mm-hmm. and he had his uh, blacksmith shop in the backyard of my grandparents' house. So he was my hero. Um, you know, for a kid, it was kind of middle class. Uh, Southern California in the 1950s, and then you've got this uncle who climbs mountains and uh, uh, skin dives and uh, goes surfing. <laughs> so um, I, I had been in Santa Barbara for a while, and uh, I had done a number of... I was really a child of the 60s. I went to uh, an experimental high school in the Santa Cruz Mountains and ended up being kind of an administrator there when I was about 17 and had done sort of a lot of things and then ended up in Santa Barbara in a, a recession in the winter of uh, 1972 to three. And I was making $1.50 an hour. And um, the, uh, it, was, it rained a lot, so I wasn't getting very many hours a week. And my grandmother sent me a postcard English was her second language, so she would send these run-on sentences. Mm. And she says, I hear you're hard up. Why don't you ask your uncle for a job? I hear he pays his men $3 an hour. <laughs> right. So how, I... Sorry, how old were you at the time? I was 20. So I uh, I did that, and, and I had to buy a car because I had no way of getting to Ventura. Um, and I found out that only the highest paid, most qualified, experienced, talented craftsmen made $3 an hour. So I, <laughs> I got two and a quarter. And um, my first job was uh, typing invoices, packing boxes, and um, 
the advantage I had over others in the company is that I did not surf. And so when the waves were firing, I was the last person in the office mm -hmm. to answer the phones and take the orders from dealers. <laughs> so I was very quickly tapped on the shoulder and said, okay, you're sales manager. And I said, what's that? And people said, well, we don't know, but figure it out. So, <laughs> so that's what I did actually for about 20 years. Uh, wow. Yeah. And that was pretty much based on the, the fact that you were not going out surfing. Yeah. Cause I just, I answered the phones and packed the boxes and got to know who the dealers were. I hired the reps. We went to, um, trade shows for the first time. And this was before, when I went to, 73 was really the year we created Patagonia. Mm -hmm. We created the idea of Patagonia because uh, Chenard Equipment was the company I went to work for. And um, they had issued one catalog with some clothing in it. Yvonne would import things from uh, very heavy cord knickers from Lancashire or rugby shirts from Australia, um, sweaters from Switzerland. But uh, we conceived of the idea of a clothing company mostly as a way to pay for the climbing equipment company because the climbing equipment company had a really good uh, market share. Uh, but the climbing world was so small uh, that it was very hard to make more than 1% or 2% of sales. It was mm -hmm. kind of precarious. So the idea of the clothing company was that it, it would be easy, it would be clean. You weren't dealing with... Uh, Clothes didn't rust in the corners, mm -hmm. um, and you didn't get lawsuits uh, for making clothes. Um, so we we had our first uh, had our first products with the Patagonia label come in in seventy four seventy five, and that's how being a sales manager got to be meaningful in any way because we actually had to sell these things mm -hmm. and go out and visit the dealers. How did your position or role change and eventually become what it is now, which you can describe a little bit better, yeah. but it's, <laughs> it's got a catchy title of director of philosophy from yeah. what I understand. Yeah. Um, we've actually, we're getting rid of um, titles. We're getting rid of director, director mm. titles and vice presidential titles. So I'm not quite sure wh where that lands me. I think I end up being the company philosopher. Mm -hmm. um, from the beginning, I was involved in the catalog copy and and um, that was so I was uh, involved in the company's stories and kind of defining who we were and uh, uh, writing the ads and that sort of thing. But my main job for about 20 years with a little bit of time off in the middle, it was two separate stretches of being sales manager. And I, but I hit 40. And when I hit 40, I thought, if I'm going to be a writer, I'm, I need to do this. I mm -hmm. need to get serious and take some time out. And I couldn't do it with that job. So I left... Um, left the job and was actually a freelancer for the company for about 13 years, kind of teaching myself how to write, still supported myself mostly from Patagonia. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever there was a complicated story to tell, I would often get involved with it. Then I came back in to the company 
to run the editorial department mm -hmm. and uh, did that for a number of years. And then I worked with uh, Yvonne Chouinard on a book called The Responsible Company. Yeah. And intended after that to um, basically do some freelance writing for the company. And, and, uh, uh, but that it didn't turn out that way. I, uh, I retired on a Friday afternoon and then on a Sunday uh, I had to come in and uh, run the marketing department on an emergency basis, so, which I did for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then when I left that, that's when I assumed this role. And what being a director of philosophy actually means at Patagonia is that I, sp I spend about a third of my time with uh, students, that's how we met, um, yeah. uh, either talking at colleges or I have a regular gig at Yale where I work with students um, who are in the joint program between the environmental and the business schools. I spend about a third of my time on internal education with uh, classes for employees and also uh, put out an internal newsletter, quarterly newsletter on issues that are critical to the company. Mm -hmm. And then about a third of the time evangelizing for B Corps and uh, other businesses who are interested in the way Patagonia has yeah. path you followed. Will you briefly explain what a B Corp is? Sure. Um, a B, uh, B Corp is a... Well, I'll go back a little... a step back a little bit. There were three fellows in college who were all friends. And two of them started a company together and won basketball shoes. Mm -hmm. And they were very mm -hmm. successful and they sold the company. And they were very disappointed when they sold the company because they felt that they had done business in a certain way with a lot of care for customers, employees, um, attention to the environment. And that when they sold the company, all that went by the wayside. So they got together and with another friend who hadn't been part of the company to start a movement of companies that want to live by, to identify the values they want to live by, and then to practice those. And so in order to become, uh, B stands for benefit, in order to become a certified B Corp, you submit to a, a test of practices and most companies come up with a, there's a, a, a scale of a, a score of 200. Most companies, when they first take the test, average about 55. You have to be 80 in order to become a B Corp. So it can be a multi-year process. And after you become a B Corp, what you do is you write your most deeply held values and practices into your articles of incorporation and into your business charter. You submit to an independent assessment every two to three years of how you relate to your customers, your employees, the natural world, the suppliers, the communities that you operate in. I think it's a very important movement. It's been mostly small companies, but now some larger companies are beginning to get interested. Um, Danone is an example, a big yogurt and mm. water company. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 Um, and they are making subsidiary by subsidiary is becoming a B Corp is the approach they're taking. I also think it makes a difference. You had this statement 
last summer from Business Roundtable, which is made up of big multinational, privately traded, enormous companies. Mm. And they said that they no longer subscribe to the idea that um, the only thing that a business can be concerned with is the value of the stock. And so something called shareholder primacy that has been really has ruled the roost in the business world and the publicly traded business world for the last 40 years. And they said that they embraced something called stakeholder capitalism, which recognizes that's when companies recognize their obligations to um, their responsibilities to the, their suppliers, employees, communities, natural world, etc. And I think that those companies are embarking they you know they, they they they're not sure what to do because they have been so focused on stock price mm-hmm. for so long and i think they have something to learn from the b corps about yeah. just what a stakeholder is or what how do you what are the obligations how do you discharge those obligations yeah and i think you kind of provide a sort of checklist in got your book yeah. here the responsible company yeah and I would like to understand, I, I understand where you're coming from, but mm-hmm. we use the word sustainability yeah. all the time, trendily right, right now. Mm-hmm. And I believe in your book, you talk about how you guys choose not yeah. to use sustainability. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that decision? Yeah. Um, we looked at it. We were concerned that a lot of companies would have sustainability departments. Um, And the word sustainability, I use it too, because that's the word everybody's using. But if you really look at it, what we've we've learned, what we had learned over a 10-year, 12-year period, is that almost nothing we did is sustainable. That almost everything we do, in spite of all the steps we take to reduce our harm, we're still taking more from nature than we know how to repay. So that's why we thought, you know, we're not sustainable and we're not going to be sustainable anytime soon. But everybody can be responsible. Everybody can take an inventory of what they do, learn more about their practices, because a lot of companies really don't know what's done in the in the name of a product that has their label on it yeah. because of the supply chain is so deep and and so inter- global. So that was the idea. We thought everybody can be responsible. And um, there's another word that's being used a lot, which will probably be misused well. <laughs> fairly quickly, but um, we're, we like it uh, regenerative. Mm-hmm. And the idea with regenerative is that you're actually giving back, you're actually replacing um, the natural resources that you're using. You're giving back to nature as much as you're taking. And, um, and I think that also applies to communities and applies to human beings where you're actually giving back to the place you do business rather than extract something, um, uh, extract more than you can repay. So we like we like that word. And I think the interesting thing is is that if you really do want to be sustainable in a way, 
you have to be regenerative mm-hmm. because that's the whole process of of uh, life uh, uh, creating life rather than uh, life just demolishing. Mining. Yeah, life demolishing or just us mining the planet or mining yeah. communities. How do you see us transitioning? I guess I'm thinking on more of like an economic level mm-hmm. of what incentivizes businesses to be regenerative? Well, I, I think that one of the interesting things is that it, that a regenerative model also works economically. So um, Patagonia, I think, is, is we're very successful right now. And it's... Uh, and, and some of it is luck, and, and some of it is that there's a fad for Patagonia at the moment. Um, but I think that there's also something else has happened, and that is that we've been down this path for so long that it's actually become our business model. That um, what we learn when we accept constraints on our behavior, uh, what, what we're forced to do, in order to, we're forced to innovate. Mm. In order, we can't use the same dyes that every other company uses. We can't, um, we can't go into a factory that um, exploits its labor. Um, so all of those constraints result, force us to innovate, and those innovations have actually become the business model for the company. So it's not as though we're compromising and we're saying every day, okay, here's how we're going to make money and here's how we're going to be good guys. We're really concentrating on how do we make our products in the best possible way and create the deepest relationship with the customer and do the right thing. Um, and that uh, falls to the bottom line. What initiated... And I imagine you may have been involved in this, but what initiated the transition from, I guess, the mission statement of do un- no unnecessary mm-hmm. harm to we, I believe we are in business to save the planet? Yeah. Um, I know I wasn't involved with that. And as a matter of fact, it made me very nervous. <laughs> uh, the old mission statement was uh, build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a mouthful. But on the other hand, those three major clauses, uh, build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire solutions, that was something that every employee really understood. Everybody, Every employee at the company yeah. really knew that. And it's also something that took us... 27 years to clarify yeah and to inhabit mm. you know when when it was new when that mission statement was new we in 1991 we weren't doing all that much mm-hmm. uh, in the supply chain or doing that much to change our practices we didn't know very much so when even we started talking about well, i want to change the mission statement we're going to make it uh, uh we're in business to save our home planet I kind of cringed. I thought, my God, that's so aspirational. Mm. You know, that's not really true. Uh, But you know what? It has been a year, and it's been clarifying, I think, for our employees. 
and that they now look if you're if if I'm a product manager and I look at my line and I say what am I going to produce this year does it really meet the mission statement or not and it's it's uh focused mm-hmm. I think the company on um what we do and and uh focused us on um being better <clears throat> doing things very doing things better continually and for the very near future rather than sometime mm-hmm. down the line I, I appreciate the the vision of it yeah. and i think it makes sense i guess i'm it almost seems that you know like for us to save the planet or the mm-hmm. ecosystem yeah it almost seems like that's um uh it's kind of wrong in a sense or i guess it to me it seems like if we just get out of the way mm. then the planet will balance itself rather than i i guess i think yeah. the idea of saving or savior kind of feels like we're the gods uh-huh. that control this planet and we need to save it rather than recognizing that we're the ants or should be ants yeah. and yeah. We should learn how to work more harmoniously with yeah. the ecology. I, I sympathize with that. But I think part of what we're doing to save our home planet is to get out of the way, mm. is to advocate for regenerative agriculture, which is um, um, to advocate for uh, dam removal, which when the rivers restore themselves to health, the fish come back. Um, so a lot of what you're talking about as the kind of right way to go about being in a proper relationship to nature is something that you can actually do as a company by saying okay we're we're going to we're going to adopt these practices and get out of the way. Mm-hmm. And then in other places you want to be it takes a lot of human effort to you know we have to get out of fossil fuels. So we make half our line out of nylon and polyester. Mm-hmm. So we have to develop a way in which to make clothes that perform in the same way that don't come out of an oil well. Yeah. And you mentioned environmental advocacy, um, sort of zooming out away from Patagonia and mm-hmm. more at this broader mm-hmm. problem of environmental crisis, yeah. climate change. What is your perspective on the best way to be an environmental advocate while bringing along others, not shaming, yeah. but effectively creating right. change? That's a really good question. I think there's a place for both. Um, I think one, you have to have, you have to encourage a positive vision of what the human community would look like as a part of nature and not just in somehow in opposition to it. Um, and that vision is mostly a positive one. It Shaming is not very effective. Um, but in some ways it's hard to get around that because that's actually... Um, I want to be careful here because I... But I, I think people do feel a deep sense of shame. Mm. They don't often behave well as a result of feeling shame, but I think, I think it's a human emotion that, that says to us, we're, we're, we're doing the wrong thing or we've done the wrong thing. So there's mm-hmm. a role for it. 
something to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, but that said, I, I, I think that you also, if you, one of the things that's really been important to the company from the beginning, I think because we, because we came out of the mountain climbing equipment community, is you really want to talk to customers as friends and equals. And you don't really shame your friends. You, know, mm-hmm. you, you meet your friends where they are. Um, so I think that that's also important for us. Mm-hmm. I feel like we often think, or we've sort of created this narrative around the importance of individual decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have my own understanding of it, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering how impactful are our individual choices of consumption and how can we make yeah. larger change? Yeah. Real quick, in your book, I think you said the biggest impact is often what you produce, not what you consume. Yeah, I think that's true that the big decisions, um, the decisions that impact the environment are made at work. Um, That said, there's a, you know, there's another way to look at it, which is that when you get everybody not using plastic straws or everybody outraged about the uh, gyre of plastic in the mm-hmm. in the oceans. Um, there's a there's a role for that. There's a role for having a sense of agency that I can I can do something in my own life. On the other hand, I think that we have a a problem in the in this country and probably in others too of deciding that what we do as a what we do as a group of people or as a community doesn't matter somehow that it's all individual decisions and what we do in groups matters a lot and it's something that I really learned from being at Patagonia for so long that I've seen this happen that when people work to make changes work together to make changes in good faith because they're motivated to do it that it really makes a difference and I think it makes more of a difference than individual decisions i mean you know i got my little electric car outside but that's um uh i i think that people can get lulled to safety thinking uh oh my gosh i'm recycling or i'm driving electric or i'm um, yeah like you're you've done it you're fine now i've done it i'm fine now and it seems to me that people are whether it's people or companies or countries, it seems that we're very separate from the decisions Mm -hmm. that we make or the consequences of them. Mm -hmm. I guess my question would be, how do we bring the consequences of our decision closer or to light? To light. Um, For a company that comes from really looking at your practices and going, there's a kind of a beaded curtain behind, you know, the supply chain and you, mm-hmm. to really understand what's, what's being done to produce the products that you're making. Um, for nations, nations almost find the same problem that companies do. Uh, there's an interesting discussion about, some cities uh, uh, making an assessment of their of their their climate impact, and a big question whether or not you include the thing all the things made in China that you're using mm. in the town you live in, 
and I think that that's something that it's very difficult to um, to combat that. But I think that that's something we all need a much better sense of. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that food produced? How mm. are those products made? Where where are they made? Who's suffering? Yeah. Do you see? Because I know you guys rate some of your or all of your clothing yeah. on or products on impact. Yeah. Do you see that as a beneficial um, tactic that could be applied throughout creation through throughout yeah. products? Yeah, I really do. Or food or yeah. No, I really do. um, There's going to be a big change this year because we we helped start an organization called Sustainable Apparel Coalition. Mm -hmm. And this is, in a way, this is not at all like the B Corp movement because these are conventional companies. Most big, everybody's a part of this from Land's End, or not Land's End, but H&M. I don't know about Land's End, but Mm -hmm. H&M, VF, uh, Nike, Adidas, uh, Levi's Gap, et cetera. And the idea is for these companies to uh, take measurements of impacts in factories, um, energy used, water used, waste generated, greenhouse gases generated, then also to identify the processes and materials that are least harmful. But then the third element, and this I think is the interesting most interesting one, which will come out this year, is a consumer-facing index. So you can put your cell phone up to a hang tag and get an environmental and a social rating on that product using a methodology that's shared by everyone so you don't start to get claims and counterclaims of greenwashing, et cetera. And so people will really be able to look for the first time at at, at the clothes they buy and say, oh, this is, and compare them from one piece of clothing to another. And I think that that's important because people don't know. It's too hard to find out, uh, you know, how the cotton was grown in your T-shirt or uh, what the labor practices were. Mm -hmm. I'm actually trying to find out. Do you know Buckminster Fuller? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, he had, you might know, but he had this list that, or he wanted to create a essentially a resource list mm-hmm. uh, remind me if you remember the name but yeah. he wanted to create a resource list so that we know essentially what our impact yeah is from as comprehensive yeah. as an understanding as we can so yeah. i guess i'm it almost feels like that that we're like needing to collect all of this information yeah. that is how much harm we're doing yeah before we say like oh let's go after straws or let's go yeah. after oil or let's no, go after banks. Or... No, I think that's a really good, really good point. Yeah. Um, and I think that this could spread to other industries. Um, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, that methodology works really well for companies who are have deep supply chains. Um, but then you have the what, what uh, B-Lab is doing and its impact assessment. So I think you have the potential... Um, to create in any industry um, the data gathering that would enable you to understand un- understand yeah. your practices and make decisions. Yeah. Sort of a different topic, but was it 2011 you ran 
an ad, I think, in the New York mm-hmm. Times that said, don't buy this jacket, right. as well as had your approach to um, product development yeah. or whatnot. Yeah. Um, can you take us through the thinking behind that ad? Yeah, yeah we started um, in 2005. We got interested in the idea of cradle-to-cradle manufacturing. And real quick, how would would that be the same? Because I've heard it. It's like William McDonough or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Um, is that, that seems very directly related to a circular economy, regenerative right. economy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it is. It's similar. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things we learned, and I think people, I think there's more attention to this lately, is that it's actually very, um, very easy, not easy, but it's doable to take polyester and nylon and melt it down mm-hmm. and re-extrude it as a new as a new fiber. So you're really fulfilling McDonough's idea of of making a, a product of equal value to the original mm-hmm. um, from its waste. So this is a great idea, but it's not the it's not the only thing you need to do. And so what we discovered is that re- there's a reason recycling comes last. Mm-hmm. That if you, when you talk about the four R's, you talk about reduce, repair, reuse, recycle. And one of the things we identified right away is that we had, we took way too long to repair things that mm-hmm. customers brought back. And in fact, they wouldn't wait. So we would end up replacing a jacket rather than repairing a zipper. Mm -hmm. But for all the energy that goes into into making a product, it should be repairable, Mm -hmm. right? Because otherwise you're going to recycle it when it has too much life left in it. Same with reusing, with clothing. I forget what the figures are, but, you know, an awful lot of clothing ends up in people's closets for years um, when it could be taken out of the closet and used by someone, either sold or given away. And then even in the the recycle part is kind of shocking. Is I think that something like 85% of the clothes in the U.S. are still thrown away. Wow. So we looked at this and we said, okay, we, we're, we want to do this. We, we want to take back anything we've ever made. And we, we determined to do that. And then when we learned about repair, we, we increased the capacity, uh, we hired more uh, sewing operators to make the repairs. We created a platform for customers so that they could resell or, um, clothing that they no longer wanted. Mm-hmm. But then we looked at the final, the first question, reduce. And, and that's really fundamental because you're still, um, even when you're recycling something and making something new, you're still putting new energy into it. So the idea is there's so much waste and people buy things they don't need um, and people make things that have questionable uh, value. So why don't we tackle that? And that's kind of hard for a consumer products company to say, okay, don't mm-hmm. buy our stuff. Yeah. So the, 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 attack, the, the attack we chose was the attention-getting headline, but also to point out we, we uh, highlighted one of the most environmentally benign products we make in our two jackets, uh, high recycled content, 
lasts for 10 or 15 years, which is a huge element in sustainability is how, how long something lasts. Yeah. The end of its life can be recycled into something of equal value. Perfect. But then we pointed out, okay, this still uses um, uh, enough water in its manufacture to meet the needs of a village mm-hmm. for a day mm-hmm. that it generates X times its weight in greenhouse gases, two-thirds of its weight in waste. So the upshot of this this ad, we got a lot of attention. People considered it a campaign, although we only ran the ad <laughs> once. Um, and some people accused us of hypocrisy, and they said, well, your, your sales are increasing. Um, but we had other responses, too. And one, one of them is the chairman of Danone, who's in the process of, pretty brave process of taking a, 25 billion euro company to B Corp status. He said that um, he was first inspired to become a B Corp by the Don't Buy This Jacket ad. Mm -hmm. He said it taught him that you could appeal to customers on the basis of values as well as instincts. So I think that was, that was important for us. It was a big decision. We, we took a, a vote of the board. We were afraid that, um, it could have negative consequences. Mm-hmm. We didn't know. Yeah. yeah. No one else had done that. Admirable. Yeah. But I I wonder, because it does seem like you do mean it when you say don't buy this jacket. And like you're mentioning, we do have enough clothing. Mm-hmm. I guess I was just thinking about it, that it's like if we had enough bananas for the whole world to go like for 30 yeah. years from now, mm-hmm. that when the bananas don't go bad, they're in a special yeah. warehouse, whatever. Um, we probably wouldn't be producing many bananas. Right. But because fashion mm-hmm. and clothing moves with trends and maybe it's just because we don't have a system set up to get people the clothes they want without creating new ones. But why doesn't Patagonia stop making clothes? Well... People, uh, I, I want to give kind of an honest answer to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we spend a lot of time selling clothes. And we spend a lot of time making clothes that work well and that look beautiful. And we put them in stores and we we welcome the business that we have. Um, I think at the same time, we're making the ar- a similar argument that you would make um, if you're selling high-quality goods. So somebody will say, well, why do you make your shorts so that they last 15 years? Would it be much smarter to uh, make them less durable so customers have to buy 10 pairs instead of five? Mm. And we say that's okay. Yeah. So the there's also kind of a... Uh, we could go out of business, um, but people still need clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and clothing does the, the 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 fleece jackets last forever, but shirts and pants uh, uh, blow out after a few years. Um, we make very good clothing that lasts a long time. So I guess that would be the justification. It'd be similar to kind of the the ultimate existential question: is if human beings are such a bad influence on the planet, why why not mm-hmm. take ourselves out of the picture? Then. 
I think the answer to that is a little different, which is that if we are part of a larger picture, then we should play a role in it that helps all the other creatures and the and the plants and the elements of life live out their full lives. Um, and that disappearing uh, may or may not help that, but it's probably not um, a good... I think it's very hard for uh, uh, someone that for something that is alive to. I think there's a there's a, a strong desire to continue to live, <laughs> but also to to do the right thing. Yeah, I I often think of Buckminster Fuller wrote this book Spaceship Earth, <laughs> and I remember one thing he was talking about was that if every if space or if Earth is a spaceship. <laughs> humans are sort of the first class passengers that are just mm -hmm. sitting there eating the <laughs> right. eating the food being served to them <laughs> yeah. and not doing anything else while the worms and the ants and the trees and all and are bees and, yeah, yeah are feeding us yeah. essentially are serving us um and so I, yeah i guess i like what you're saying is that if we sh should try and figure out how to harmonize with the rest yeah. of life rather than and it's a great project yeah. to do that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, that's the other thing about the mission statement. We, you know, we're in business to save our home planet. What I've seen is every time we charge the employees and we say, listen, this is what we need to do, everybody gets behind it. You yeah. know, if, you're, if you have a broader purpose than just hitting your margins or your sales, mm -hmm. uh, people get into it. Yeah. And I was... Um, I was talking to essentially a climate scientist, my last mm. podcast, yeah. and he was sort of visualizing this crisis that we're having as a more existential moonshot that mm -hmm. yeah. hopefully it can bring everyone together that we realize that we need to come together to survive. Right. Um, so hopefully there's something around that and i think this you, you brought up earlier a story around this whether it's many stories hopefully mm -hmm. um stories around that 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 around the environmental crisis that yeah. guide us in caring and yeah. changing yeah i think it can be a tremendous guide i think it forces people to think about how how do how do we want to live um on the planet, and I think that some of the most uh, we know how to create more livable cities. Um, we know with regenerative agriculture how to restore soil to health, so mm -hmm. that we can feed more people, and without the pollution that that um, drains the rivers and oceans of life, um, we know that we need to as you were pointing out earlier, that we need to take big swaths of land and get out of the way as much as possible and let the critters come back. We've seen that when we remove dams that the fish return mm -hmm. uh, much faster than the scientists originally imagined. So there's all this uh, potential, I think, for, uh, for creating a, a way of living that is 
much better than we've had before, in which we preserve some of the some of the value of what we've gained over the past 150 years, which is an awful lot of knowledge and a kind of level of, of, of uh, comfort and dealing with disease and all kinds of things that are a great advantage. But, but take that a step further and say, okay, this is not based on um, how many baubles I have or how, many, how much money I have, or, but based on um, am I living out... Um, my talents am i am i living in relation to my friends and my family mm -hmm. am i helping the earth restore itself you mentioned sort of creating a swaths of land yeah um and i'm sure that's one tactic but do you think we should be concerned about eco-fascism at the moment and i'll just say that eco-fascism is essentially a theoretical political model in which an authoritarian government would require individuals to sacrifice their own interest to the organic whole of nature. Yeah, I think that the key element there is who's forcing yeah. who. And I think that one of the... But this gets into a very complicated area. Uh, I think for people to care about where they... To care about the natural environment they live in they have to have some understanding of it okay what's our watershed um who's farming what in our area how do we where do we, can we get more local food uh what kind of local economy do we build so that we're not um victims to um globalized globalized economy the forces so you know all these towns in the south and midwest that have lost their downtown and people drive 40 miles to, to Walmart or, or bring things in from Amazon. Yeah. So I, I think that to avoid fascism, you have to strengthen democracy. Mm. And, to, and I know that people find it very hard to care about the environment unless they have some sense of place, something that they really love, that they have to know it. On the other hand, they, you have a lot of, <laughs> you have a country like China, which is horribly um, uh, I don't know quite the word I want to use. Fa fascism is probably close enough, but they also have a strong sense of the environment. I mean, they have uh, standards for. Uh, car mileage and are much higher than ours they, mm. they're really uh, they have a, a strong idea of the environmental pollution they cause even though they're opening more coal plants they have a they have a they take the long view and uh, so I don't I, I don't want that for the United States I don't want that for Europe and I wouldn't want it for most of the world mm -hmm. but it may have a role to play and we may learn from China because they the, the party can make a decision and turn around on a dime and yeah. we can't um, do that. My brother and I used to argue about whether education is a more effective agent of change than top-down, I guess, environmentally conscious decision-making. Decision mm -hmm. And I guess my question is, 
do you think most effective change happens from the bottom up or the top down? Or maybe there's a different answer. I think from what I've seen, using a very Patagonia's kind of a narrow laboratory that we've had an owner or owners who have periodically come up with some top-down decisions that made life pretty hard on the rest of us mm -hmm. who were trying to make the clothes and sell them. On the other hand, I think that a lot of uh, the carrying out uh, and a lot of the motivation uh, was to um, reduce environmental impact was shared by the employees. So that's one thing. So I, I'm not much of a fan of top-down um, probably coming from the 60s. Mm. But also I think just an understanding of systems that uh, generally systems change from the side or from the bottom up rather than from top down. I, I think that top down power tends to uh, preserve itself and get a little lazy in terms of what's, uh, what's, uh, what's healthy mm -hmm. for the organism. Um, so well, my, well, my answer is complex because I think sometimes top down can be great, but for yeah. the most part, I think change comes from the side or from the, from the bottom. It certainly comes generationally. Yeah. There's a huge, you know, part of the reason these big companies are talking about stakeholder capitalism is because of the pressures they have from younger employees. Yeah. What do you mean by coming from the side? Um, there's something called edge effect in biology so that you'll see change at the margins where one system encounters another. Mm. Um, and uh, so I, I think that that tends to be, uh, tends to be true. Um, where you, uh, w whenever you have a monoculture, it kind of defends itself. Uh, um, and, and has trouble doing so because it doesn't have the resilience uh, that a richer system has. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just had a note at some point that realizing, is it just, di not just, but is it diversity that we're really after? You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and it's something to remember in terms of climate change because I think that biodiversity gets lost in the argument and that actually... Um, Charles Eisenstein has written quite eloquently saying, well, we might deal with climate change and still lose the planet if we don't deal with the issues of biodiversity. Well, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, trying to think if there's anything else along that note, but yeah, I, I, I guess I'm just wondering how we can, it, I guess it seems like it's such a complex issue mm -hmm. and we often want to dumb it down to mm -hmm. something yeah. simple. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's just that we need to accept the complexity of it and attack it from right. different angles or if yeah. no. there is a understanding that we all can reach with our limited understandings right no i think that that's a really important question there's um, i think one of the ways to look at it is you have to 
one of the things that we've done in a country that was run for 150 years by engineers, and now it's kind of run by lawyers, but um, what we lacked was a, a, a holistic look. But the more you, but when you look at things holistically, you can also get paralyzed because you're not sure. There's so many things you have to take mm. into account. And one of the things I think that people have been talking about in recent years, and I think it's really true, is what you want to look for are activities that are that leverage advantage. So you can't do everything at once. So I'll give you a, a concrete example or a non-concrete example. In the city of Philadelphia, um, they wanted to plant trees on the uh, on every block. And what happens if you plant trees is that it uh, filters pollutants. It cools the summer air by several degrees. It makes human beings happy, right? So you get one action that produces five, six, seven benefits. That's the kind of thing you want to do. You don't want to you don't want to under, undertake massive projects that have one single benefit when there's so much to be done. And I think that the more that when you look at nature-based solutions, those are the ones that often create the most leverage. So rather than build a giant seawall, how do you how do you what, what, don't cut down your mangroves, let yeah. them come back to life, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. This is a little bit back towards Patagonia, but I often think of the idea of the IKEA effect, mm -hmm. which essentially means that when you put effort into building something, you value it more. Mm -hmm. huh. How do we create more things that we truly love and value from your perspective? Um, well, simple thing is uh, IKEA effect. If you have a piece of clothing and, and you tear it and you repair it, you become more attached to it. Uh, I've seen this happen. Uh, time and again, where you actually uh, form a relationship with something that's based on your experience with it rather than it being brand new. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to do with, with a piece of clothing when it's new because you're not putting it together like I, IKEA. But um, our Warnwear tour, I've, I've gone on a, on a couple of those. And I, and I remember having a pack with a, with a buckle uh, busted and them teaching uh, the pe people in the warnware truck teaching me how to use the seam ripper and then mm -hmm. putting a piece of red thread when we repaired it and yeah so now it's not just a pack it's my it's my pack yeah I, yeah i'm trying to think of other ways that we can change behavior to to value things. I mm -hmm. guess I'm, I'm right now mm -hmm. just thinking about like when I own a bike, mm -hmm. I treat it well. Mm -hmm. When I use a bike share bike, I'm less likely to treat mm -hmm. it well, yeah. maybe because of my perspective. Yeah. Um, but then again, bike share is, is a good thing. Yeah. Probably yeah. a less environmentally harmful thing. Um, so maybe that's not the best example, but I, I guess I'm trying to think about how we culturally, incentivize people to repair something, add value yeah. to something. Yeah. And not that you have to have an answer, but just throw it out there. We found, it's interesting, when we, you know, we, we 
we did the research and we said, okay, people are not bringing back things for repair because it takes too long. So we doubled our capacity. Um, then we doubled our capacity again, and then we doubled our capacity again to the point where we have the largest uh, clothing repair facility in North America. Mm -hmm. So what we found is that people did want to repair things. They hmm. didn't have a an they didn't option. have a way to do it. They didn't have an option. And the whole culture is so uh, built around um, having something new and then discarding it that. Uh, that's something I think that maybe the consumer-facing index will help when people understand what actually goes into a piece of clothing that, hey, this thing is valuable. Yeah. I'm interested in what the conversation is like in a meeting with top executives at Patagonia regarding profit. Mm -hmm. How does the conversation around profit and sustainability play out? I think that they're, they're not much separated. Um, I think what we, I give you an example. So we have our our uh, chief financial officer came from Disney, where she worked there for a long time. She's been with Patagonia seven, ten years. Then she was in charge of a project to find us a new uh, East Coast warehouse because we'd outgrown the one in Reno, and we thought, well, it's a good idea to have one on the East Coast. That's what everyone does. She started to look at. Um, properties and realized that we were going to be displacing farmland um, or cutting forests to create a 300,000 square foot warehouse. So she got interested in the idea. What we ended up doing was building on reclaimed coal mine mm. in Pennsylvania and working out a deal with, uh, with, a, with a company that operates it for us and we, we do the leasing. So she was looking at everything. I mean, she was looking at the costs. She was looking at where the location should be. But then she saw this that wouldn't be a question at many other companies, but was a question for us about taking over the farmland. So it wasn't separated out. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, it, it, I think it, and I think that that's the most important thing we've learned is that it has, that this awareness has to be a, Social and environmental awareness has to be part of everyone's job, and you have to own it. So you're not expecting somebody from the sustainability department yeah, to come yeah. and slap you on the wrist yeah. because you're you're uh, you're uh, uh, removing topsoil. Yeah. Um, so that's the key. Yeah. My my brother is working as a sustainability director coordinator <laughs> at a clothing brand, uh -huh. and he's very much having to attempt to change yeah. the decisions yeah yeah and that's hard yeah what accomplishment at patagonia are you most proud of whether it was your action or something larger um there, there are a few um footprint chronicles was a team that um i worked on a group of people and we did that without a budget and kind of created it and it and I think it it was helpful to the company mm -hmm. um uh, don't buy this jacket was a project I worked on with a colleague uh but I think the thing that I was always proudest of the most was that I worked in 1992 uh the company lent me out to a uh 
an NGO in Maine that was working to remove a dam mm. from the Kennebec River. And uh, the dam produced one quarter of 1% of the electricity for the city of Augusta, Maine, and blocked 17 miles of spawning grounds wow. from the ocean. Had been there since 1837. So the owners, the dam's owner did not want to take it out. And nobody had ever taken out a dam in the United States against the wishes of its owner. So this group lobbied. Um, I wrote a couple of ads, op-eds for the, um, not op-eds, but ads on the op-ed page for uh, Washington Post and New York Times. Mm -hmm. And um, the governor got involved and the dam was removed. Wow. And all the fish came back except for Atlantic salmon, all the major species came back uh, right away. So I was really proud of that. That was a, um, I would I would get on the phone at six o'clock every morning with the the NGO fellow who would tell me what the lawyers needed rewritten that day, and yeah, we'd go ahead and work. Wow. And in terms of your time at Patagonia, is there something that you want to get done? Um, before, before you say retire or <laughs> no longer are associated yeah. or work there? Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's not so much related. It's partly related to Patagonia, but it's also personal. And that is that you know, I worked with this book, worked on this book with Evo and what a responsible company would look like. And I'd like to work on a, I'd like to, finish a book on what a responsible economy would look like. How, how do you nest responsible companies into a productive economy that actually uh, works for people and nature? And uh, so I'd like to finish that. Very cool. What's your relationship like with Ivan nowadays? And how much older is he than you? 13 years older. Okay. So he's uh, 81. I'm coming on 68 uh and uh um no we're um uh, he, i don't have many people left he was the youngest of my parents generation of my mom's generation so um uh, and we worked together for 47 years so he's very dear to me yeah i have a couple more questions yeah um if you had to narrow down what you've learned from working at Patagonia for about mm -hmm. the last 40 plus. 40, yeah, getting on, what is it, 20, 47 years. <laughs> um, into one or two sentences, what would that be? Um, Knowing you're a writer as well. <laughs> <laughs> the advice, the, the, there's a three-part advice that we put in the book from Daniel Goldman that I think is really critical for companies looking at what they're, what they should do. And the first is, um, to know your impacts. And, the, and then the second is to, uh, make improvements. Hmm. And the third is to share what you learn that becomes critical because you can help, you can help other people. Um, the only other thing I think that's really important is to build a what impresses me about Patagonia is that we've 
the original culture of mountain climbers and surfers survived. Mm. And so some of the best parts of that culture that it was um, people trusted each other. People uh, were not authoritarian. They were not bureaucratic. People cared about what they made. All of those things have survived. And, and if I... And I, I think that people are learning that that's actually the best kind of business to do, uh, whether you're an NGO or, um, or whether you're an actual entrepreneur. Um, and that it matters when you actually operate according to high, higher values. It, it motivates people more. Mm-hmm. Imagine your 20-year-old self over in the chair over there. Yeah. What advice would you give him? I don't know. I'm not close enough to the 20-year-old to offer advice. Um, Or a younger self. Yeah, a younger self. You know what I I tell the students that I work, work with who are often um, because of their interests they're not going to go out and go to work for an investment bank and mm. make a fortune right out of the gate and um, a couple of pieces of advice I, I give one is to understand have some knowledge about what gives you really deep satisfaction um, because it turns out that 90% of work is chores right Mm-hmm. So you want to be doing the kind of work that actually brings you some delight and, and um, that on its good days uh, makes it feel worthwhile and that you've actually um, exercised yourself as a person. And then the, the second piece of advice I give, which is kind of a corollary, but also understand how are you useful to other people. Because that may not be a huge source of satisfaction, but there you may be. I think everybody's kind of recognized for certain talents. You know, somebody's going to ask somebody to help hang a picture. Somebody's going to else, you know, ask to help write a resume. That kind of thing. And uh, to understand how you're useful is is a little bit separate, but but that's uh, that's something you can build a uh, build a life on. Um, and the the only caution I would give people especially people who have strong values and want to change the world is um, if you're going to change the world make sure that you're doing something that does bring you that bring you that satisfaction that is exercising the talent you have and not is just something you think that needs to be done my last question is when you think of the most passionate person you know, who is the first person that comes to mind? Hmm. I don't know how to answer that. Um, I'm skeptical of passion that's not tempered by... uh, uh, some understanding of uh, or some respect for others. Uh, say that say that again. Well, you know, I'm sure Donald Trump is a passionate mm. person. Mm-hmm. But what he doesn't do is 
or what he doesn't show is a, um, a kind of a respect or love for uh, people outside himself. And so uh, I think passion has a really strong role, but I, I, I tend to look for where that passion is moderated in some, in, in some way by understanding the effects on other, on other people. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, an, another word that could be, that could um, include that possibly? Just for my own for your understanding for your own understanding, you know, word which is not nearly as elegant. Um, I really like the word agency. Um, that I think that that's a strong internal force in people. The sense that you are acting out your life and acting out your whole life, that you're not putting aside your values, you're not putting aside your love, you're not putting aside your desires, um, you're acting as a, as, as a whole on, 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 on behalf of what you think and feel. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much All right, for the conversation. Yeah. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast. If you would like to get show notes from the learnings that I hope you gathered during this conversation, you can email bubonpurpose at gmail.com and you will get a response with all of the show notes. Make sure to title the subject of your email something like show notes or your grandma's cookie recipe, your friend's dog's middle name, or really anything. I'll get back to you. Also, I would love if you would send me your suggestions of what you did or didn't like or who you think I should interview next on the podcast. And again, please send that to bubonpurpose at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. If you could subscribe and share, that would be awesome. Uh, if you don't want to, let me know why, and maybe we can make the podcast better. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, go follow us at bubonpurpose on Instagram. Uh, I don't know why I just said us. It's just me.